Hello, this is Kelly Fitzpatrick with Red Monk here with my excellent Red Monk colleague, Dr. Kate Holterhoff. We're here today with another episode of The Doctor In. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We'll be touching on digital humanities, communities of learning, and maybe some open source communities and what that has to do with it. Um, with us today is Lisa. Lisa, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Lisa Talia-Ferry. I'm Senior Director of Developer Education at ChainGuard, which is a software security startup. Um, my background is a mix of tech startups and uh, academic work. So I completed my PhD at the City University of New York, um, studying mostly digital humanities, medieval literature. And then I went on to do postdocs at MIT and at the Villa Itati, uh, which is Harvard's uh, wonderful archives in the Florence area of Italy. Uh, so I've been working in this intersection between uh, humanities and technology for uh, about 15 years now. I'm always excited to get another medievalist um, on you know, either any type of interview or on the show. And I know Kate is big into digital humanities, but I think we're both jealous that you got to go do work like in archives. I know. I can't believe that. That's exciting. Lisa, if, uh, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, how your career path has uh, sort of synthesized these different threads. Would you be able to talk a little bit about how the digital humanities has informed your work at ChainGuard and other startups? Sure. So I think, yeah, through, throughout my career, I've been interested in how humanities have kind of been doing leadership work within the technology field. Like, I think we don't consciously think about this, that a lot of technology is humanities technology. So reading, writing, even spoken language itself are all technologies. Uh, today, we think about them as being firmly within the humanities, but these are these are human inventions and human innovations uh, that have, you know, we've passed down, we've improved upon through generations. Um, so I, I think I take this long view of humanities technology and and today we have computer technology. And one project that I think is really interesting is this letter locking project that's out of the, it's actually a few different institutions. So Queen Mary and MIT are the two, uh, I think, leading authors there. But it's a project that uses a lot of recent computational technology and also um, computer imaging. Uh, so I think they use dental dental technology to kind of open up these letters without damaging these letters that are historical, uh, you know, Renaissance, early modern era letters. And then they use a humanities uh, perspective to, to bring inquiry into that discussion. Uh, so it's like a beautiful uh, collaboration between technology, computational technology today, and this humanistic approach that leads the way. And it's very interesting to me currently, since I'm working at a security startup and this technology of, you know, sealing letters, locking letters is basically the same way that we think about software, right? It's the same kind of checks. So is this software something that has been signed? Do we know the provenance of the software? Uh, is there a way that we can ensure that the software was not tampered with? It's, it's exactly the same idea, but it's just translated to this new uh, field. And that's that's amazing how those like almost like 
two parts of your world are, are kind of colliding, um, you know, with that overlap. Um, so you've talked a little bit about, you know, like kind of chain guard uh, in the security space, but you are also adjuncting at Rutgers University, which is kind of near and dear to my heart because I'm from New Jersey. And so many, so many folks I went to like high school with, like, you know, went to, went to Rutgers um, and it's, it's a great school. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing, what you're doing there, what you're teaching, um, other stuff that might be kind of capturing your interest while you're in that space? Yeah, so I've been uh, teaching a graduate seminar in digital humanities, and uh, this is through the Italian department, but it's open to any uh, graduate student in the humanities. So we've been having pretty good cohorts, maybe about seven to 10 or so uh, students. And for a lot of them, it's their first touch point with tech, this kind of like tech, technical or computational digital humanities where they're learning Python or, uh, you know, thinking about how they could leverage web servers. Uh, of course, we talk about uh, machine learning and AI since that's kind of the, the elephant in the room in uh, education right now. Uh, but it's been very, it's always interesting for me to kind of step back into the beginner's mindset. And it's something that is also relevant for my career, like thinking about the career in, in tech, um, thinking about, you know, what assumptions am I making when I'm trying to help somebody, uh, you know, complete a, a, a goal of theirs or get through a project or, you know, realize what it is they're trying to do. Um, the other thing is that what I think is, interesting uh within the humanity spaces there's a lot of discussion right now about sustainability of, of projects especially when academia is going through this really difficult time where there's uh changes in funding uh there's changes in you know who like tenure lines and what department is getting the resources that they need uh so thinking about digital humanities projects in a sustainable way and how if we get a seed grant of some kind, how can we maintain that or how can we properly archive that so that the, the work is not lost and it still could be part of the bigger discourse. So that was um, that was what the focus of the last um, spring semester course was. Um, so it's really, it's just great to think with people who are kind of just starting their careers in academia about what, what does sustainability look like and how can they be intentional about it. Yeah, I've been I've said on the show that I never want to have to go back to school because I never want to have to do like like tests or writing or something like that. And I never want anyone to have to grade my stuff. But I would I think I am jealous of the folks who get to take your course. Yeah, 100 percent agree, um, which I think kind of dovetails with a lot of the work that you've been doing uh, that uh, really, you know, kind of synthesizes with communities of learning and how those are, are sort of. Um, I guess, extensible ideas that we see both in the tech world and in academia. And so, you know, Kathy Davidson spoken a fair bit about the importance of communities of learning for ensuring that, you know, education remains student-centered. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how historical communities of learning have contributed to your own ways of thinking and uh, how this community-focused philosophy feeds into supporting open source communities um, of learning and the sort of larger uh, tech ecosystem? Yeah, so uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to work closely with Kathy Davidson when she moved to um, CUNY. So she's currently leading the Futures Initiative there, which is a great program that I feel is uh, like a great future perspective of public education where they're bringing um, community college undergraduates, uh, 
you know, the four-year college undergraduates and bringing them in direct conversation with graduate students who are teaching and kind of building this student-centered communities all the way through. So I would say I'm very informed by her work. Um, she also talks about that technology like pencils and paper as being technology too. Um, so I'm a big fan. Uh, but I I do think that based on my like my medievalist background that I take that also a very long view of this. So uh, a lot of my work has been on uh, Caterina da Siena, Catherine of Siena, who's a 14th century medieval mystic and she was working during this time when Latin was the, the language of the, the, the powerful and the privileged. Uh, so a lot of knowledge was being disseminated or produced in a language that most of the people that are you know, out in the piazza, they're not speaking that language at all. Uh, they're not, they're certainly not literate in Latin. Um, so what, what was going on during this period uh, there were lots of community workers like like Catherine, like uh, Francis of Assisi um, and others that were kind of tapping into this move towards vernacular learning. And uh, that was, you know, we have the poets like Dante and Pichard, but they are also people who are kind of professionals. They're they're not people who are, you know, coming from great wealth where they don't have to work and they could just be poets. They They all have jobs of some kind, too. So they're kind of working in this space where they're making knowledge a little more accessible to like common people. Um, Catherine of Siena, I think, is particularly interesting because we think a lot about, you know, historical male figures who are, are operating, right? We have a lot more history that's coming from male perspective. But with Catherine, we have this, this uh, kind of look out into these communities of women who are literate because she has her like fellow women who are the Mantellate, which is uh, a community order of the Dominican nuns. So they're not in a convent, they're out on the street. Um, they are her, they serve as her scribes. They're the people who taught her how to read and write in Italian in Sienese Italian. And they're like, their voices are echoed through this, the, the you know, the textual tradition that we have. And I think that this model is so interesting. Like there's these, these echoes of voices that we maybe didn't necessarily have access to, uh, but thinking about how just people are kind of making their own space for knowledge production outside of these other, uh, these, you know, these spaces of power and privilege. How can we learn from that? Like in, in terms of open source and in terms of who, who gets to build technology, who has access to learning technology and how can, yeah, how can we leverage communities of learning that are, are peer networks that could help, you know, people kind of enter into this discourse that could enter into software development or kind of making the decisions about software and then can in turn serve their communities. So the Catherine, she wrote in Italian, which was in service to her community in many ways. It was an intentional choice. Um, the, the her confessors, like the men around her, would translate like viva voce to the, the Pope or or other important people into Latin because they could not understand Italian, but it was important for her to represent her community in this way. And how can we also like kind of, you know, use this kind of idea of a vernacular technology to to kind of empower people who are maybe not invited to that discourse and to bring other voices to the fore because 
technology is only useful if it's serving the people that it's supposed to serve. Uh, so if we don't have them participating, then it's only going to serve a small subset of the population. Yeah, and I have, um, of course, as a medievalist, I don't, speci- I didn't specialize in, in Italy or Italian Renaissance, but um, I'm very familiar with the kind of articulation of, of, especially Dante as being this like champion of their vernacular. Um, you, you know, but to your point that you have, you have made in other places as well. It's never just one person. Uh, we we would like to like fixate on one moment in time or one person who has kind of made something happen. Um, but so often other folks, especially like so Catherine of Siena, but also the communities that she is associated with, which is not something that I knew about Catherine of Siena, even having gone through you know being like a, a academically trained medievalist. Um, so I think the your your parallel the parallels you're making between something like, uh, you know, Catherine Sienna and her communities and what she's doing with language and open source communities for me are, are a- absolutely fascinating. I look forward to the days where you, you start publishing like 20 books on, on this, this topic. So I, one last, you know, kind of question, and we, we were talking about this when we were kind of doing a planning call for this, for this episode that, you know, as academics, we probably should all be meeting, having like a beer in a bar or something, but because we're, we're all in different places that that didn't happen, but, you know, more on the side of, you know, having, having come from uh, you know, that ac- academic side of things and then lived in the tech world where everything is moving a lot faster. Whereas in, in academia, there's often a lot of hoops to jump through for, for different things. Um, how, how do we put it charitably? I, I'm, I'm trying, I'm really, I'm, I'm really trying, but how do you have the patience to kind of go back to academia having, you know, dealt with the, the much less frictiony world of, of tech. And also it, it sounds like you've brought a lot of people from academia with you. Yes. I also, I, I actually, I, one of the interesting things that I've learned about like these community, like especially 14th century communities is that uh, like, how, how do you, like, how do you think about your network and how do you think about uh, like, yeah, how do you see how people are connected? So even that part is really interesting to me. There's a, there are quite a few and I could um, share them with you. Uh, we could put them in the notes, I guess. But there's quite a few like uh, Renaissance books about networks, which are really interesting. And like, especially like letter networks, because it kind of makes material some of this that we we can't, could not readily see otherwise. Uh, but I would say, thinking about this question, I... I think that there must be a happy medium in between startups and universities. And I'm not sure what that is because sometimes it does feel like startups are moving very fast. And, you know, like since I work a lot on documentation and education for uh, users, uh, sometimes the product changes <laughs> while you're trying to publish uh, your like learning resources about it. So that's, that is, that could be very fast. I do like, I, I think, a lot of people who are trained in, uh, you know, in academia, like in academic work as PhDs and researchers, I think that people who are trained this way do have like a bias for action, which is very suited to the startup space. So uh, people like have a lot of ownership over their work. They uh, have like a vision. They could kind of plot work for years, right? Like with the dissertation. So I think that that could be really well suited for startups. Um, and then at the same time, it it could be very disheartening in academia where you try to publish articles and uh, you submitted 
the original article before the pandemic and then you still don't see it and you know it's 2023 and um you're not even sure if you feel the same way about the article that you originally wrote so i don't know i think you know they both have their good points like it's it is good to be able to think through something for a long time because if you don't have that the space for that it could you know you might say things that you don't really believe later or you might um, realize that you were thinking about it the wrong way. So I I do appreciate some of that slow, um, methodical approach in academia that we don't we are not afforded in startups where we do have to kind of act quickly. Yeah, that resonates, I think, with a lot of uh, what I've seen as well. And I won't speak for Kelly, but this entire conversation has been therapeutic for me. Uh, so I want to thank Lisa for coming on the Doxer today. And with that, the Docs are out.